How's it going, everybody? This is Chris. Welcome to episode 65 of X-Lapsed, where, hey, Wave 2 just keeps rolling on. Today, we're going to introduce a brand new title. Well, I guess it's not completely new, but it's a new volume, and his name is Cable. Now, this is Cable, volume 4, number 1, at a May 2020 cover date. The story's called Big Guns, written by Jerry Duggan with art by Phil Noto. Letters, VCs, Joe Sabino, designs Tom Muller, head of X's Hickman, edits Bisa White-Sabolski, cover price $4.99, and went on sale March 11th, 2020. Now, before we get started here, uh, I'm so happy to be doing this issue mostly because sitting right next to me is a short box, and it's where I stick all of the Dawn of X books that I'm, you know, that I'm going to be working through on this uh, little uh, project we're doing here. Cable coming, you know, at the front of the alphabet, or as close to the front of the alphabet as we're going to get. I've been looking at this damn cover for three months now. Cable number one. That cover has been staring me in the face, so it's really nice to get it out of the way. Of course, now I'll be looking at cable number two for a little while, but hey, it's a little bit of a change of scenery, and when things get as stagnant as they get on this program, any change is nice. So, let's get into this. Now, we open in the middle of a fight scene. Now, Wolverine and Kid Cable are locked in combat, with the former slicing the latter's big old gun to pieces. Cable then uses his telekinesis to stop Logan's all-out assault. He stuns him long enough to get in a few shots, and then he jams the pieces of his broken gun on top of Wolverine's claws, so, like, impaling them on Wolverine's claws, which renders the claws heavy and uh, not quite so pointy because there's a big chunk of metal on both of them. A different kind of metal. Cable then tackles Wolverine to the ground, and, uh, get this, he's declared the winner of this bout. The hell? Oh, well, it turns out that they're in a place called the Quarry, which is Krakoa's fighting arena. So this is like a spectator sport. Not quite as severe as the Crucible, but I guess it's a nice enough way for certain mutants to have uh, an opportunity to blow off some steam. Now, we see here that this is all being officiated by the Silver Samurai. He is the referee, and he calls the fight for Cable as a result of a pinfall. Wolverine is ticked off. He claims that TK is against the rules of the quarry. Nate brushes it off and says, Hey, there ain't no such thing as cheating in the quarry, except when magic does it. And we'll talk very, very briefly about that in just a bit. Frankly, I would like to see the rules of the quarry. Oddly enough, uh, you know, considering how hyper-reliant so many of these Dawn of X books are on info pages, we don't actually get to see the rules. Maybe one of these days. Or maybe we'll never see the quarry again. Who knows? So Silver Samurai pretty much tells Wolverine to stop being a punk here and states that he owes Cable a marker. Not sure what in the hell that is. I only watch fake combat sports. So maybe a marker is something like in legit MMA that I just don't know about. Speaking of fights and info pages... 
How about we look at one right now? It looks like, to this point, there have been 13 fights in the quarry. The results have all been recorded, and this entire deal he has been officiated, of course, by the Silver Samurai. It's nice that he, you know, he's got such a fun job, huh? It's, you know, it's a good job if he can get it. Let's go through the, fir- the 13 fights here. The first battle of the quarry was a battle of the Krakoan captains, where Gorgon faced off against Magic. Gorgon wins via disqualification, which there's a sign of Magic doing something that they consider to be cheating. We don't know what, exactly what that is. Maybe they'll fill in that blank later. Fight the second is Nightcrawler versus Blink. That ended in a draw. The third fight is Esme Cuckoo defeating Irma Cuckoo. Uh, I'm not sure how they could tell them apart. As far as I can tell, I think they're all back to having like the same hairdos now. So That was a nice little aside that they did back in the day where they changed up their looks a bit so you could tell them apart. Though, if you give me all three of them or four of them or however many there are of them, I wouldn't be able to tell you which one was which anyway. Fourth fight, Rogue defeated Havoc. Yeah, stands to reason. The fifth fight, Magna, Magma defeated Firestar. And we haven't seen Firestar yet, have we? So, it's nice to know she's here. The sixth fight, M defeated Bishop. Which is confusing because I thought she was going by Penance now. Uh, maybe she alternates, I don't know. I wonder if this might be like a little bit of like a pun, considering that Bishop has that big ol' M tattooed over his eye. Probably not, but what are you going to do? The seventh fight, Wolver- Wolverine, not Wolverine, Wolfsbane, defeated Pyro. Which, yeah, I guess if there's no manipulatable fire around, Pyro really shouldn't have a chance against a werewolf. The eighth fight pitted Dazzler versus Jubilee, and Dazzler wins, so uh, I, uh, I demand a recount on that one. Uh, the ninth fight, Leech defeats Artie, which, I mean, that's so sad, isn't it? I, I don't even know if I want to see that fight. That's... That's kind of heartbreaking. Then, we get the start of a Goldberg-esque streak. The 10th fight, Kalisto defeats Pyro. The 11th fight, Kalisto defeats Fish. I gotta wonder, is that the same Fish who was like Juggernaut's little buddy during the Chuck Austin run, where Juggernaut was an X-Man, briefly? Uh, Even if not, I haven't thought about that kid in ages, so I guess uh, thanks for the flashback. The 12th fight, Kalisto beats Jumbo Carnation. Yeah, it doesn't seem like much of a fair fight, does it? Huh. And, I mean, this is written by Jerry Duggan, who's also handling Kalisto over in Marauders, and we did see a scene with Kalisto and Jumbo, but they seem to be uh, getting along okay. I don't know. And now, of course, Fight 13, Cable defeated Wolverine by cheating using TK. From here, we get our standard double-page spread of creds, and then our roll call. This issue, you know, being a solo book, has a fairly sizable cast, and uh, they include Cable... Wolverine, Pixie, Armor, Silver Samurai, Curse, and Fauna. Now, after the fight is done and the, I guess a marker is handed over, whatever the world that is, Nate excuses himself for a double date because he's, uh, he's got a busy evening ahead of him. But from the looks of it, it seems more like the start of a menage a trois than an actual double date. It's just him and two girls. Uh, and if it wasn't clear from the roll call, those two girls are Armor and Pixie. Anywho... Before the date can properly begin, he's approached by a young Krakoan named Curse. Now, he wants Cable's help because his friend Fauna is in trouble. And if you remember way back in X-Men number 2, which we discussed in episode 19 of this program, Krakoa merged with that other island. Remember, they kind of they kind of bumped <laughs> and stuck together. Uh, it was that one with the weird beasts on it, and it had that 
really boring pale shaman or wizard or whatever the hell he was on it. Well, Fauna, in this issue, decided to explore the other side. There's a, a line between where the people live and where the monsters live. He crossed the line. So, he's over there and there might be trouble. Curse doesn't want to tell any of the grown-up mutants because he's afraid that they'll all get in trouble. And so, he asks Cable to look into it. Cable gives the big old thumbs up. He's all about it. Now, we shift scenes to catch up with Fauna, who, if I'm not mistaken, we learned a little bit about... In, uh, what is it, New Mutants number one He's uh, responsible for the Disgusting yet delicious coffee Of Krakoa um, Yeah, I think it was New Mutants number one Which we discussed here on episode 16 They said it tasted like Innocence and unicorns and rainbows Or something They also alluded to the fact that uh, Well, in order to, I guess, percolate It had to make its way through his uh, small intestine Or something like that So, fairly foul But what are you going to do? Anywho Fauna is, like, pulling through the forest here, through the jungle, whatever it is, runs smack dab into Cable. So, we found the kid. Mission accomplished, right? Well, not so fast, because on the end here, we have a big old lion-like beast incoming, and uh, that's looking for a fight, of course. Fauna reveals that this monster's in great pain, to which, at that very second, I, I figured maybe they should look at the paw and see if there's a thorn in it. And I hope I didn't just give it all away. <clears throat> so, cable, armor, and picks. You're going to have to deal with this monster, right? What do you do with this kid? You know, the kid's going to get in the way. So, what do you do? You have Pixie sprinkle some hallucinogenic dust on him to make him think he's watching cartoons, basically. He's looking at this lion beast, and it turns into something, something like straight out of where the wild things are. And instead of the dialogue being Cable cursing a whole lot... It's uh, like all syrupy sweet. They're talking about candy and, and, and sugar and stuff. So he thinks he's watching a cartoon, basically. And he stays out of the way for a minute. But then he starts walking towards the monster, claiming that he can help the monster with its pain. Cable then tosses the kid, literally tosses the kid out of harm's way and into Pixie's hovering hands. She exits stage left to take the junior barista to safety. So now we've got Cable and armor. The latter shielding the former from getting smushed because this beast stomps on him. Now, while they're being stomped, they stop to chat about previous X-Force teams, of which Armor was a member, only she was working for the old man Cable, not the kid Cable. And the kid Cable says, I don't know what to tell you about the old man. You know, he doesn't know a thing about the old man. I think he killed the old man, but he doesn't know a whole lot. Now, during this sidebar, and as the beast lifts its foot off of Armor's, you know, armor bubble, Cable notices that, get this, there is something sticking out of its paw. So Cable has a plan. Gonna knock this beast over using his big old gun. And then he's gonna have armor like lift the paw up long enough for him to pluck out the thorn. And well, that's exactly what happens. Only it's not a thorn. Any guesses as to what this might be? <sighs> yeah, it's a sword. Because of course it's a sword. We know where this series is going. Uh, now Cable thinks this is the coolest thing ever and even like renounces guns for it. He's like, hey, the guns were for the old man. I'm all about the swords. But then he's, like, overcome by the blade. He's suddenly enveloped by lightning and electricity, and then he passes out. Then, inside Cable's mind, there's a vision of the previous wielder of this sword. And it's a space knight. You know, like Rom. Though this one's name was actually Morn. He claims to be the first of his kind and the wielder of the Light of Galador. And he would be killed by this very same lion beast, by stomping. 
Cable wakes up and he talks a little bit about this vision, and he thinks Space Knights are super cool, which I suppose we'll have to agree to disagree. I'm sorry, I never found Rom interesting. Uh, he then proclaims that big guns were the old guy's thing, and of course he will be a swordsman. Now, this proclamation is interrupted by Daddy Cyclops, who comes in like kind of like all Mr. Belding-like, you know, the, hey, 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 what is going on here? Armor and Pixie leave the Summers as is, is to chat at this point. And so, Kid Cable tells his pomp about his Space Knight vision. Now, Cyclops admires the light of Galador Blade and comments that it's far too light to have earthly origins, and then he wonders where it might have come from. To which, we shift scenes to the... Bakigan, Bagigian, <laughs> Bakigian Museum of Lost Civilizations, which is somewhere deep in space. A museum tour guide walks past a trio of Gal- Galadorian armors. Suddenly, they begin to stir. They wake up. They know that the light of Galador has been found. The museum staff is, you know, freaked out by all this, and, and rightfully so. The Space Knights step off the display and swat the folks away before rocketing through a wall en route to Earth. Now, we learn that these three have been in hibernation for over three millennia, and that they believe that this light of Galador can restore everything they desire, whatever that means. Scenes shift to another time and another place. We see a giant enemy crab just crabbing around. Suddenly, it gets blasted right between the eyes. And the person doing the blasting asks for the whereabouts of someone. The crab, in his final words, because yeah, this crab is actually a really good English speaker, tells the old man to go to hell. I ask you, who might this old man be? Hmm, well, duh, it's Cable. You know, the other one, the old one, the real one. From here, we get an info page uh, written by the man regarding his first hunt and the perils currently facing the Earth. And we're out of here. That is Cable number one. Next episode, we'll be wrapping up the Dawn of X Wave 1 number eight with X-Men. But first, how about we talk about what we learned here today? Now, first of all, this was a much better first issue than Wolverine. Maybe because it was so much shorter. Um, But, I mean, even even if we take the two Wolverine stories apart, right? There were two in that that first issue of Wolverine, Volume 7. I'd say this story was better than both of them. This was a fun one. And, uh, wow, the filled Noto art was sure nice to look at, wasn't it? It made the book feel kind of important. Like, the same way, like, Rod Reese's work makes New Mutants feel can't miss, right? It has that specialness to it. Now, art aside, let me begin with some of my misgivings going into this. Uh, I really don't care for this character, first of all. The new kid version, that is. The main, you know, the old man cable, was never a favorite of mine, but at least I knew him. This one, don't know all that much, and I don't see why he warranted his own title. And frankly, even after reading and enjoying this issue, I'm still not convinced that we need this book. I've talked a time or two about the bloat that occurs in every editorial fiefdom. It's not just X-Men, it's not just Dawn of X, it's any time there's a family of books... That sort of gets hot. It's a bloat, right? And I feel like this is a result of that. Now, the Dawn of X line is successful, relatively speaking. And I guess you gotta strike while the iron's still hot. Hence why they're gonna continue to bloat this line going into 2021. I'd uh, be surprised if we get a single month throughout the first half of that year without at least one 
new X-Men book being launched. We'll get a new number one probably every month for the first half of the year. I think up to this point, the solicitations are out until February, and we've already got like three new number ones. We've got Sword. We've got the Children of the Atom that they're finally going to launch. We've got that uh, X-Men Legends thing that they're doing. So it's a lot of new books are coming out. That said, I may have come into this issue with... I don't want to say a chip on my shoulder, but maybe with a little bit of trepidation. But I enjoyed it. Uh, Then again, I probably would have enjoyed it just as much had it been a one-off issue in the main X-Men title, which itself is comprised of one-off stories. Now let's talk about our main story here with the thorn thorn in the paw. It was cute, but telegraphed, of course. Uh, That's not always a bad thing. And it was actually a pretty clever way of getting the sword into Cable's hands. Um, it was a clever way of sword delivery in any case, actually, uh, which, considering the direction of this entire line, uh, at least until present, uh, it works quite well. You know, we need swords. There's a whole thing about it. Let's do it. Space Knights, uh, let's talk about them. Uh, as I mentioned during the synopsis, I never saw the big deal in ROM. I think there are a lot of rose-colored glasses at play. When people discuss the ROM series, to me, and I'm, you know, I'm just a goofball, but it feels like a catch-all uh, for like, hey, 80s comics, you know, which tickles people, as it should, but I, I don't think it was really all that great. Now that said, while I don't so much care about ROM or the Space Knights, I do care a lot about lore. So I'm a big fantasy in the Knights integrated into the story. I figure any reminder we can get. That, you know, concepts and characters on the very fringes of the Marvel Universe are still out there kicking. That's fine by me. Uh, Maybe this Cable book will be the one that makes me actually care about the Space Knights. Or at the very least, frames them in a way that I can sort of get. Maybe it'll be like a gateway. This book will be a gateway drug for me into Space Knights fandom. You never know. You know, crazier things have happened. Uh, Let's look at the quarry battles. This is an idea I really, really enjoy. It's sort of like a danger room, in that our mutants can challenge themselves and keep up their training, while also making a spectator sport of it, which, where, like, evidently wins and losses matter because they're keeping a record of it. I'd like to see this get more fully fleshed out. It would be, I think it would be a lot of fun if they added, like, title belts. You know, why not? Bragging rights. Uh, That's probably just, you know, the the fake sport fan in me, but uh, I I think bragging rights could could be a fun thing to do. That said, I wasn't very happy seeing Wolverine jobbed out the way he was. Maybe we'll just blame that on uh, Theory A, Krakoa manipulating him a little bit, eh? Eh, why not? Uh, The ending scene. That was probably the most interesting thing to me. Um, Now, I have yet to read the Extermination miniseries from last year or the year before that. I know I discussed making it like a books club thing, but if I'm being honest... There was a whole lot more excitement about this X-Lapse show and project when I first started it, uh, and it's kind of dramatically waned. So maybe one of these days I'll get around to it. But suffice it to say, I haven't yet seen the confrontation between Old Cable and Kid Cable, nor do I know any of the reasons why it went down the way it did. I don't know why Kid Cable is even a thing, to be honest. I mean, remember, if you're following along here... Uh, One of the things that I said early on was that I thought Kid Cable spun out of Major X. I thought Major X was Kid Cable. And, of course, we're doing another show here, Major X-Lapse, where uh, 
I learned that is certainly not the case. That's something altogether different. Now, I do assume there's a logical reason for this. I just don't know what it is yet. Anyway, all this to say, I really like seeing Old Man Cable at the end of the issue. Though, as the narration caption implies, it's another time, which I take it to mean not now. I mean, it stands to reason, doesn't it? I still dig it, and I'm probably most looking forward to seeing where this aspect goes. Um, I'm not sure if we'll ever see Old Man Cable back in the here and now, but I think between both cables, like if we split this book into following both characters, Kid Cable and Old Character, uh, Old Cable, I think uh, I think that might be a good way to go. And of course, it may not, but I, I think I could get on board with something like that. I think it'll. I think between the two of them, they can shoulder an ongoing series. Is what I'm trying to say. Uh, overall, I had much more fun with this than I was expecting. It was cute and clever, great use of Marvel lore, and it was gorgeous to look at. Uh, I'm happy that this is being written by Jerry Duggan, and that it's uh, not a follow-up to Fallen Angels. At least not at the onset, anyway. Uh, yeah, anything could happen. Uh, I figure you could do far worse than to pick up this issue. I think uh, most X-Fans out there, lapsed and otherwise, will, uh, will find something to appreciate in it. Now, before we go, let's hop into the mailbag here. We have a few messages to go through. We're going to start with our friend Damien. Now, he's discussing Wolverine number one, which we covered like five or six episodes ago. He starts with, let's start with the positive. The art in this comic is amazing. Adam Cubitt is an actual genius and obviously loves drawing Wolverine. I wonder if he's considered such a star that no one dares ask him to make changes. You mentioned Domino's scarring, but I found Kitty wearing her old costume the most jarring. And that's one of the things that I brought up during the Wolverine uh, discussion. Adam Cubitt draws the first half of that. There, there were two full stories in there. Adam Cubitt's the artist on the first. And a lot, well not a lot, a couple of the characters were drawn to look different. <laughs> Beast looked more like his animated series form, uh, which he hasn't looked like in a very long time. Domino, despite being scarred from her time in the Xeno canister, she's perfectly fine. And as Damien's pointing out here, Kitty Pride is in her old costume. She's not in her, you know, new Marauders gear. It's more, it's more like the X-Men Gold costume. Just she has long hair now, so it's, it's different. And I do wonder if Adam Kubert is considered like X-Men royalty to the point where an editor or an assistant editor, I suppose, would try to correct him. I think I do consider him to be in rarefied air, as it pertains to X-Men and Wolverine artists. But still, someone really should have stepped in here. I mean, at least give the dude a style guide. Uh, if, if those things even exist anymore, because I doubt they do. Because uh, it's clear that he's not actually following the other books in the line. Or if he's doing so, he's, he's skimming. Because, uh, I mean, Beast is a major part in X-Force, which is written by the same guy who wrote the Wolverine series. Domino is a major, major point of view focus in, uh, in X-Force. Again, written by Percy, who did Wolverine. Give, give, give your artist a style guide. Uh, actually, step one, make a style guide. <laughs> you know, draw out these characters. We, we need Jose Luis Garcia Lopez here to like draw these characters out the way they're supposed to look on panel. So then you give those, you disperse those to your team of artists here, and it's like, okay, if you're gonna draw Emma Frost, this is what she looks like. She, you know, she doesn't have a mohawk and a nose ring. You know, draw her the way she's supposed to look. And uh, I think uh, Adam Cubitt, despite being, you know, uh, a I guess legendary 
X-Men artist. He's been on these books since I was very, very young. I think despite all of that, eh, follow follow the uh, you know, follow the rules a bit. Uh, Damien continues. I missed Bogdanovich's DC work and first saw him on X of Tens and was unimpressed. That might have been down to him drawing two issues, both released in the same week, as the story looked much as this story looked much better. He seems to be influenced by Mark Silvestri, which is appropriate for Wolverine. And I haven't seen uh, any of his X of Ten stuff yet. Uh, of course, I you know I won't be getting to those for uh, a little while now. <laughs> but uh, maybe if you're interested in seeing some Bogdanovich work uh, from DC, just you know try out a Google search for New Superman. Very, very strong stuff, and uh, it almost reminds me, in a way, of Michael Turner, at least facially. Maybe like a mix of Michael Turner and Greg Capullo, because it has like, it has a little bit of the, uh, you know, Capullo's a, a fantastic artist, but he does have um, some McFarlane in him, you know. Uh, there is, he does have the the potential of making some blobby-ish faces, but does so in a stylized way where it doesn't look like silly putty. And uh, I think Bogd- uh, Bogdanovic, he has a little bit of, bit of that to him as well, but he also has a very clean look like a Michael Turner. It's very, very good stuff. Um, I own the entire run of New Superman. I think I read the first two issues because I, it, I just dropped off of it. But I, I do own them all. <laughs> They're nice to flip through, I guess. I just haven't read them yet. Uh, Damien continues. I definitely preferred the first story. It was a bit of a collection of cliches, but I felt like they were arranged in a fresh way. And in particular, the flashback device was well used. We've seen ex-worshippers and drug cartels before, but they were given new spins. Percy seemed to be holding back his pretentiousness as well, which can only be a good thing. And yes, uh, Percy was very un-Percy-like here. Uh, And that was to the book's benefit, (laughs) to be sure. Uh, The first story, yeah, as mentioned during that episode, I felt that one was much better. And I guess it did put a bit of a fresh spin on some tired tropes. Uh, Though I gotta say, if we ever start another issue of Wolverine with him knelt in some bloody snow, wondering how or why he managed to murder a bunch of his teammates, I might lose what's left in my mind. I feel like that is just beyond played out. And it never ends in a satisfying way. It's... It's always mind control or hallucination or... Eh, just don't need it. Uh, Damien continues. I missed Curse of the Mutants, and therefore I'm not as wary of vampire stories as you. There are definitely parallels between Wolverine and vampires that could be explored. I don't think we needed a page of pseudoscience to explain how Wolverine's blood is similar to vampire's blood, but I'm not adverse to the idea of drinking it would augment a vampire. Or that drinking it would augment a vampire. I wasn't keen on the revelation of Dracula. I prefer my Marvel Dracula to be a regal character of the past, whereas here, he's more of an obvious monster. And I don't know that I'm so much wary of vampire stories as much as they just don't appeal to me. You know, um, I've often compared myself to Superman that way. You know, not just due to my super strength and invulnerability, of course, but as we've seen in Excalibur, I have a particular weakness or non-investment in, mani- in magic stories, you know, and I consider vampires to be sort of of that realm. I just can't get invested. I feel like, I mean, we're talking about superhero comics here, right? But I still feel like there aren't enough rules to those stories um, to keep me on board. It's just like, you know, it's the, the wizard did it, the devil did it, the vampire did it. 
I need more rules to, to, to invest properly, which is my problem. You know, that's, that's all on me. But that's why I'm not really looking forward to seeing how this story plays out moving forward. Damien continues, Omega Red bores me as well. And I tell you, I get giddy seeing Omega Red. Since he was like, he was like the first big new villain introduced while I was, you know, just becoming an X-Men fan back in, you know, 91, 92. So it was like, I felt like I was on the ground floor of Omega Red, you know. There was a, what was it, he first appeared in... We saw his casket in, like, X-Men number two or X-Men number three, I think. And, uh, I don't know, I just felt like I was on the, uh, on the ground floor of this character. But then, the story has to start, right? You know, and more often than not, it's pretty boring. What's more, it deals primarily with a period in Wolverine's life that I also find kind of boring. So, yeah, your point is well taken. I can't lie and say that I didn't, you know, I didn't kind of get giddy seeing him show up because it was just like, it reminded me of uh, simpler times <laughs> and more innocent times, I guess. Um, Damien continues, the vampire hunting nun and religious allegories were a little unsubtle. I suppose we shouldn't criticize a comic where a man with claws fights vampires for a lack of subtlety, but, and yes, that's a, that's a very fair point. <laughs> Damien goes on to say, Thank you for your kind words about me being furloughed from my job. Fortunately, here in the UK, it isn't as bad a situation as it is in the US. The government is paying 80% of our wages, and luckily I can live on that. I just have to buy fewer comics. I know there are a lot of people in the world who are becoming destitute when their work is cancelled, so I consider myself very lucky. I also much rather be at home when COVID is increasing exponentially in London. My employer has been very good in making the shop as COVID-secure as possible, but I've experienced customers trying to get too close or refusing to wear masks. It's definitely safer for, safer for everyone, and it means I definitely have time to listen to x every day. Well, of course, thank you for that last bit. <laughs> that's, uh, that's really awesome. And, uh, you know, 80%, that's, that's a great help. And uh, as far as I know, that's not the case here at all, uh, though I could be wrong. I, I, work, I work for myself, so I haven't... I really haven't had to deal with uh, anything like that, so uh, I don't know. And I generally don't ask a bunch of questions to, to my friends about uh, what's going on, you know. Um, I figure if anybody wants to tell me, then they will, and I shouldn't pry otherwise. But I'm really happy to hear that uh, your employer is taking proper precautions here. Um, I feel like a lot of places here, um, like they have their... I'd say they have their hearts in the right place, but maybe I ought to say they have all the proper signage in the right place to avoid getting sued or called out. I mean, it's tough, though, isn't it? Um, thankfully, it's become kind of a rarity, at least in my neck of the woods, to see people out and about without masks. I know early on in the in the pandemic, it was just like... It was like a 20% you'd see with people wearing masks, and everybody else would... Uh, not so much deny the need for them, they just wouldn't wear them. And uh, now, it's a rarity to, to see people without them. Although, of course, there are definitely exceptions to that rule. Stores out here, they are putting, like, mask mandatory signage up, but they aren't actually enforcing it. They'll let people walk right in without them, and they wouldn't even, often they don't even address the fact that they're maskless. And as much as that sucks for everybody in the store, I can almost, I can get it, is what I'm trying to say. The way I figure, it's got to be really tough working in retail and having to risk your health every single day with this damn virus, and then 
to have to risk having someone who refuses to get a, to wear a mask to get all up in your face when they're questioned. So it's a, it's a toughie. I understand why they would just kind of let that lie, rather than have some somebody get you know flip their lid and get in their face. As far as you know, the social distancing, that's another tough thing to actually enforce, especially like if we're talking about a big box store. You know, um, I mean, we're in the middle of November now. And the aisles, especially going into the holidays, they're only going to get more crammed. Um, we're going into Thanksgiving season. I've already started shopping for for the big feast, and you got to do it like you got to do it like piecemeal almost because you want to be in and out of the store as quick as you can. You you can't linger, and because so many people will linger, and. Uh, the aisles are getting crowded. A lot of the stores out here are doing the, uh, like the uh, drive-up delivery stuff. So you like pull up under some covered park and they bring out your groceries to you, which is great. But it also means that half of the employees there are in the aisles constantly pulling groceries and stuff. So not only are you dodging your fellow shopper, but you're dodging employees who have these giant carts and uh, racks full of uh, baskets and stuff, so it's a uh, it's really hard to keep distance, you know. I will say, the wife and I went to the Disney store a few weeks ago because uh, she's become kind of obsessed with Baby Yoda, so uh, she wanted to see what kind of stuff they had there. And I tell you, they're doing a great job enforcing the proper safety rules. You know, keeping people spread apart, keeping uh, occupancy limited, masks are mandatory and above the nose. They make sure all that stuff's good. Though, in fairness, a small Disney store is probably a whole lot easier to control than a gigantic Walmart. You know, so it's take the good, you take the bad. But at least some shops, they are uh, they are being um, very vigilant and trying to keep people keep the healthy people in there doing what they need to do. But thank you so much for the message, Damien. And uh, really, I'm relieved to hear that uh, that the government's helping you guys out. That's uh, that's really cool. That's really cool, and it's just one less thing to. I mean, this this year has taken so much, and uh, it's it's just one less one less huge burden. It's still a pain. It's still a burden. It's still an inconvenience, but. It, it, they lessen the blow, so that that's awesome. I'm glad to hear that, and uh, very happy that uh, you're staying safe and healthy. So thank you. Thank you so much. Uh, next, we have something from Evan Bevins, our friend Evan. He's talking about Fallen Angels in full. He finished reading it. He says, Fallen Angels was not for me. If I'm reading a story about killing machines, I find it more interesting when they rise above it or at least struggle with it, as opposed to, I was made to murder, point me at something who deserves it, or point me at somebody who deserves it. To which, uh, maybe Brian Hill watched a whole lot of Dexter before writing this? I don't know, the, the wife has me binging that show right now, so it's kind of it's kind of occupying my mind a bit. But, uh, yeah, there really was... Uh, you know, I talk a lot about shoes dropping on this show, right? Probably way too much. Shoe never dropped in Fallen Angels. It was just like, okay, this is the story. Okay, there was the story. Okay, <laughs> you know, not uh, not great. Evan continues, I'll give them credit, though, when Psylocke slash Quinan manifests the telekinetic butterfly wings, that was a heck of a moment, paying off all those butterfly references. To which... 
I really thought when we saw the butterfly wings that we were like almost veering into parody territory. Um, I felt a little too cute, a little too on the nose, and I had trouble taking it seriously. Which, I mean, considering how difficult it was to take any of Fallen Angel seriously is really saying something. I, like, I almost started laughing when I saw it. Because you're just like, oh, of course. Of course she's going to have butterfly wings. Oh, goodness. But uh, I'm so happy to hear your thoughts on this uh, on this series, Evan. And uh, I've yet to hear anybody say anything good about it. I, I'm not saying that, there are pe- that nobody out there likes it, because surely somebody has to have liked it. But I haven't heard from anybody yet, so anybody listening, if you liked Fallen Angels, let me know. I'd like to... I'd, I'm not here to argue with you. I just want to know what you think. That's all. Uh, But thank you, Evan. Thank you so much. Uh, Thank you for keeping up with the program. And uh, I'm looking forward to uh, hearing more of your your thoughts. Uh, Finally, we have a piece from uh, our friend Mark, Green Lantern HG. And he is responding to the mailbag section of Marauders number 9. And he says, Another great episode, Chris. I was thinking about what you said about broken toys, and it got me thinking. If they'd done this back when Disney was acquiring Marvel and they went with the destruction of the Marvel Universe, they could have been a good point to stop this. Now I think it'll take a genius writer to tackle the X-Universe and fix it, because I don't see anything else other than a reset to fix this, but maybe it's just me. Keep up the great work, Chris. Well, thank you so much, Mark. And uh, for others out there, a little bit of context, what, uh, what we're talking about broken toys here. Um, something I'd commented on back in the Marauders episode was that I was worried that the toys of the X-Men universe here, these characters, these concepts, they might be, maybe broken is not the right word for it, but it's the easiest one for me to kind of wrap my head around, but they've been altered so that uh, it's going to be hard to walk a lot of this back, right? And how do you reset this? How do you take a step back from this? Regardless of how much I enjoy this, this status quo, I mean, I'm not naive. I know that it'll eventually have to go back to the way it was. Or largely back to the way it was. And how do you do that is the question. And uh, to address uh, Mark's first point here, I was actually kind of surprised that back when Disney you know, dropped the bucks to buy Marvel, that we didn't get a, like a floor-to-ceiling fix-up of the Marvel Universe. Like getting... When I, when I first heard that they were buying the company, um, or buying the properties and the title, everything, you know, I was worried that, uh, that we were going to get some sort of a, you know, cosmic toilet flush, the level of a a new 52, Uh, even though, I mean, the Disney purchase, I think was what, 2009. So it was a couple years before the new 52. So I didn't know what a cosmic toilet flush was just yet, but point being, I thought that we were going to excise a lot of history. I was worried that, you know, in every in every meaningful way, everything we thought we knew was wrong. Because it was just going to be the movies at that point. And we were going to do whatever we could to fold as much as much as that is convenient in to the uh, to the lore, to the continuity. And while still keeping with the movies being the main focus. And part of me wonders that had Disney gotten the movie rights to the X-Men, the Fantastic Four, and Spider-Man with the acquisition that we pr- probably would have. You know, I think it, I, it might be a safe bet to suggest that had they gotten everything, that we would have gotten some sort of a, 
uh, some sort of a reboot, some sort of a big, hard reboot. Now back to the broken toys. And I know I dwell on this quite a bit. But like I've been saying, we're all comic book fans, right? So as comic fans, we've had so many great stories just build and build and build, then turn to crap at the end. Or, or maybe, maybe it's fairer to say they just don't deliver. Maybe that's more appropriate. So we build, we build, we build, and boom, no deliver. Uh, and I'm not saying that that'll happen here in Hox, Pox, Doc, Socks land, but I don't think any of us can deny that Marvel, I mean, comics in general, if we're being honest, they have a pattern of behavior here that they really need to live down. We're used to getting things where the edges fray, and we're used to getting unsatisfying endings. That said... Yeah, I worry about how this all might shake out. Regardless of the fact that I'm enjoying Hox Pox Doc Socks, you know, I'm I I'm liking I'm liking the new ideas. I'm liking the new concepts here. I'm liking the idea that we can Yeah, it's a risk, you know, and it's stuff we've talked about before at length, that this approach, this this way of looking at these characters is is a is a big risk because it is very different. It's familiar in that we recognize a lot of these characters, but it is so different in tone. The stakes have changed. We've been through all of this, so I'm enjoying it. But it's it's you know this is comics. It's not going to be around forever. So if and of course we are dealing with ifs right now. If this Hox, Pox, Doc, Socks era does get walked back, it's going to take some doing, isn't it? Though, of course, as we've been pointing out from the very start, they have very wisely already built for us a sensible backdoor in that Mora's death could restart the timeline. That very well could happen, right? I'd like to think that it's going to be something more than that because that's the most obvious one. You know, I think that's... Where so many of our minds went to, it's like, okay, well, this will all start over when Mora dies. Which has me hoping that there's something more to it. You know, because it's just so obvious. It's a big, it's a big red reboot button that we've, that's been staring us in the face for this entire run. So I'm hoping that it's a little, something a little bit more creative and more subtle than that. But let's assume that that does happen, right? That could happen. Mora dies. Boom. She's killed. What could that lead to? It could lead to nothing, right? It could just lead to, well, Mora's dead. Because uh, there is a back door to the back door as well, because we found out that her powers will only work up to her last life. So if she dies in her last life, maybe her power to reset things doesn't kick in. So Mora dies. Boom. We just continue. Mora could die, and it could lead to a full-on Marvel Universe reboot. The sort of which I know I don't want to see, <laughs> but you never know. It could just lead to the X-Men resuming their status quo as though Hoxpox never happened, right? It could just be like, well, in this Mora's life, we got Hoxpox. But in others, we got different stories, right? We've seen all ten of our lives to this point. This is the only one that goes into Hoxpox. So maybe if this one ends, we get a story where... The blue and gold from 1992 never ended. You know, we just don't know. I guess we're just going to have to wait and see and hope for the best. And uh, me being me, we'll worry about it every step of the way, even though I 
I'm powerless to do anything to stop it, and uh, really, I don't have any better ideas, so what are you going to do? But thank you so much for uh, for keeping up and sharing your thoughts, Mark. It's very, very appreciated. Um, I'm so happy to, uh, to be getting uh, comments from you, so thank you. Uh, but if you would like to leave me a comment, you could do so very easily. You can reach me at Ace Comics on Twitter, and I, I updated my avatar for the first time in like five years. So it's now the X-Lapse logo. So there you go. If you see like a bright yellow goldish logo with an X in it, that's me. Um, so you can reach me there at Ace Comics or at weirdcomicshistory at gmail.com or you can leave a comment at the blog at chrisoninfiniteearth.com where you can find blog posts and show notes. Uh, you can also join the uh, little group we have on Facebook. It's at 90s X-Men. And uh, you can find the entire backlog and archive of the Chris and Reggie channel at chrisandreggie.podbean.com. You'll be able to find Chris's On Infinite Earths, that show. You'll be able to find Chris and Reggie's Cosmic Treadmill, Weird Comics History, Moratory Mondays, X-Lapsed, and a whole bunch more. A lot of stuff. I think we have like over 400 episodes up. So a lot of listening for you if you're... Uh, if you've got the time and the interest. So that's about it for today. Um, I want to thank you all so, so much for sharing your time with me today and uh, and for all the great comments. It, it really means a lot. So thank you. Thank you all so much. And until next time, as always, I will talk to you again real soon. See ya.